May the love of Jesus Christ, the faithful head of the church, drive out fear and shame in your lives today and always. Amen. Our reading ends, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I think this verse should surprise us more. Think about what is all wrapped up in that description of their world, of their relationship. World without shame. Think of all the differences between our world as it exists now, after the fall into sin, and the world as it existed then for Adam and Eve. This is maybe one of the biggest ones that goes underappreciated. There was no shame. The only two people in the world felt no shame. Shame is ubiquitous in our world now. And I have kind of a funny example I thought of as I was writing this message this week that maybe you'll connect with, maybe you won't, maybe you have no idea that this is a thing that's happening. Uh, But if you followed any of the news coverage about Britney Spears' conservatorship ending, anyone at all know what I'm talking about? Okay, a couple of people, yeah. All these news reports as this conservatorship is coming to an end, you can think about the times that we've heard these reports about her father, who was in charge of her during this conservatorship. He was removed recently, but that's mostly because all these news reports came out about these abusive things that he was doing to control her in this conservatorship with that power that he had over her. Uh, These news reports came out to shame him. to bring public opinion over onto Britney's side using the power of shame as it now exists in our world. I'm not defending Jamie Spears, to be very clear. I'm not defending anything of what he did with that power. I'm just pointing out, and maybe it would be worthwhile too, as you go home this week, as you're reading the headlines, as you think about the news, think about the ways that shame is utilized in our world, in this world where it now exists. It's not just a weapon that the rich and famous get to use in newspaper headlines, right? We hoi polloi types, we can use shame too. We shame coworkers. We shame friends for their transgressions against us. We put shame onto ourselves, pile shame on. Shame-based fear, in fact, is the first consequence of sin that the Bible names. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit look at one another, they're suddenly ashamed. They're afraid. They run away from one another. They run away from God. Ever since that moment, shame has become ingrained in our world now. So looking at this, this world that the text for us describes, this world that existed as God created it before shame, almost seems impossible. It's like imagining a world without air. We're used to shame and its presence. We're used to the power that shame has in our world. Power to divide, to kill marriages, to destroy friendships, to drive parents and children apart from one another. Shame has power in our world, and we're afraid of the power of shame. So we hide from shame. We, we mask our sin. We don't trust that the people who know us, who love us, would really still love us, would really still want to know us, they knew about the shame that we hide. Friends, don't let that worldly dynamic hold power over you anymore. 
Don't live in fear of the power of shame. Our readings today describe for us a, a power, a love that are greater than shame. Our readings today describe a God who does not leave us in shame, who doesn't leave us abandoned because of our guilt. No, what we describe, what's described for us in our text today is a God who wants you to know you are not alone and you don't need to be ashamed. As Genesis 2 verse 18 begins, we're listening in on God. And think about this as you hear those words. No one has ever heard these words that God spoke there apart from reading them here as you're doing. When God spoke those words, there was only one person in the world and he wasn't listening in at the time. This is something that God was saying to himself. You, along with anyone who has ever heard what God says here in Genesis 2.18, has only heard it because God recorded it in his Bible for you that you could hear him say this. Genesis 2 verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. We don't hear God using the word marriage there, but that's what he's describing. He's establishing marriage and he's telling us what his purpose is for it. Marriage is meant to be a partnership between husband and wife. Both are to benefit from marriage. Neither one should feel alone or uncared for. As our reading from Ephesians depicts for us, marriage is a relationship that's built up by readiness for mutual sacrifice. That doesn't really come easily to us, does it? Not, not so much because as sinful people, we're loath to sacrifice for one another. That is true. But maybe the thing that we wrestle with more, more often than not, is asking for sacrifice, revealing our need for someone else, our dependency on someone else by asking them to sacrifice for us. Everyone here, just about, except Mia, married. We understand that in marriage, and even before we were all married, asking someone else to sacrifice for you is uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good. We, we don't like to ask someone to sacrifice for us. We want to be independent. So how many times, think about this, how many times have you started off a perfectly reasonable request for someone else, a friend, a coworker, your spouse, uh, by saying, you know, I'm really sorry to ask, but... We feel like asking someone else to sacrifice for us, to help us, is something that we have to apologize for. We don't even think about it. Because shame is so ingrained in our world. Because we're so afraid of feeling vulnerable, of not being independent. And maybe some of that, that mentality, you can blame on our like American ethic of self-reliance, right? I feel ashamed of asking for help because I'm supposed to pull myself up by my bootstraps and do everything by myself. Maybe part of that comes out of the fact that we're Americans, but I think more so this is, the Bible teaches, just a human problem. No one wants to feel dependent on someone else. No one wants to feel like they've lost that independence. But that's the system that God instituted for this very first human relationship. And as it stood there, we don't know what it was that Adam and Eve would have been able to ask one another to sacrifice in the garden, right? There are only two people in perfection. What were they sacrificing? Time? Effort? We don't know. We can't say. The Bible doesn't give us those, those details. But we know that whatever it was, they weren't afraid to ask for sacrifice. They didn't feel that shame in revealing their lack of independence and revealing their dependency on one another. 
Because God says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, that didn't last. Right? We know that immediately after the fall into sin, again, that first consequence of sin was fear motivated by shame. Imagine how that must have felt just horrible. To have this person who, at one point, you had felt completely comfortable, totally at rest, at ease, standing in front of, suddenly turning away from you in shame and fear, and you from them. We still get some kind of a glimpse of that in our own relationships, right? When we sin against someone else, when they sin against us. But it would have been all the worse for Adam and Eve because they knew what perfection in that relationship was. They knew what they had just lost. God promises them that he's going to make it right. We know that promise. He promises that he's going to send them a savior. He promises that he's going to crush the one who tempted them into sin, defeat him forever. And all their lives, they could cling to that promise. They could pass that promise down generation after generation. But we're not there yet, are we? In our text here, we're still in paradise. We're still in this world without shame. So let's take a look at another aspect of this perfect world as God created it. As he's talking there, as he in verse 18 has that conversation with himself describing his intention for marriage, he expresses an equality of status between husband and wife. The Bible translation that we're using reads that God made a helper suitable for Adam. That word there, suitable, means face-to-face with him. If you're face-to-face with someone, you're on equal footing. There's no higher or lower, you're face-to-face. But at the same time as God says that they are of equal status before him, before one another, they have separate positions, roles. Eve is described as helper. We read in our reading from Ephesians, Adam's is described as the head. Let's be clear there. The Bible thinks very clearly of, very highly of the role of helper. Moses is the one who wrote the book of Genesis, who wrote this all down. And do you know what Moses wrote, named one of his children? Eliezer, which is Hebrew for, my God is my helper. If Moses, the one who used this word helper here to describe the role of women in marriage, was also comfortable applying that role to his God and calling his God his helper, you have to understand that there's nothing inferior, there's nothing shameful in being helper. Because this, this system was created, this, this positioning was created before shame, before the fall into sin, right? God didn't create these separate roles of helper and head to order things after the fall into sin, as if he said, well, now you humans really need something to, to figure you out, you sinful humans, so I'm going to now put this hierarchy in. No, this is the system that God created before the fall perfect system, which he looked at and said, very good. But as I said before, the system was meant to benefit both parties. Now as sinners were tempted to abuse it. Often men in their head position are tempted to act as if it were a hierarchy, as if they were ordering from on high. What God tells us here and expresses very clearly is that a man who would try and exploit his role as the head to to domineer, to bully, to take advantage 
of his wife rather than to see his, his role as head as the ultimate opportunity to sacrifice for her, to give of himself for her. What he's doing is wrong. Evil. And God is not happy about it. That's what Jesus expands on in our gospel reading here. He says to the Pharisees as he reminds them of that definition of marriage which God gave in Genesis, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. Jesus preaches a little sermon here from my sermon text, right? And he explains in that sermon that the problems that arise in our marriages do not come from this system. We can't blame God for instituting these roles for men and for women and give God then the blame for the problems that arise in our marriages. No, Jesus is very clear here. The problem is our hard in Jesus' little sermon here in, his, in the gospel reading on Genesis 2, he makes clear that divorce, ultimately, all hardships in marriage, is the result of sin. God only allows divorce to take place to spare us further pain. He didn't give it to us as this, this easy option in case we fall out of love. Right? Divorce happens because of sinful people's naturally hard hearts. We struggle in our marriages, in all our relationships, because of sin. And often in our relationships, that inborn natural sinful nature manifests itself, shows itself in fear, in fear of attachment, in fear of commitment, in fear of loss of independence, in fear of shame. Ultimately, all of that comes from fear of other people. Ever since the fall into sin, ever since Adam and Eve ran away from each other and away from God, we have shown, we humans have shown, that sin makes us afraid of other people. Even the people that we love. Ultimately, we can never fight out in this life that sinful nature that whispers to us that you can't really trust them, that they could still hurt you, that deep down there's going to be some way in which you will finally end up needing to rely on them, needing to share with them, needing their support, and they will hurt you. They will let you down. They will take advantage of you. They will abuse you. This is what our sinful nature tells us is always going to happen in relationships. It's that fear that motivates people to stay out of relationships. It's that fear that leads people who are in relationships to hide things from one another. It's that fear, ultimately, that is what leads abusers to abuse. Because they're afraid, ultimately, of being taken advantage of themselves. All of this fear, if you can't get past it, then it would seem like the most logical way, the most reasonable way to live in our world would be to just stick it out alone. But we're not wired for that, are we? People are wired to want relationships with others, to seek intimacy and connection. God made us this way, right? If we look at verse 20 there, we see God awakening this desire in Adam for a partner. God creates us with this desire for for companionship, for intimacy, whether that's in marriage, whether that's in other relationships. And yet we're afraid of those relationships because deep down we know that we are selfish, sinful people in relationship with other selfish, sinful people. And we can only assume that at some point they're going to hurt us, we're going to hurt them. How can we find in this world, confidence, courage that allows us to live, not alone, that allows us to seek relationship with other people, that allows us to love them, 
and be loved by them. God says again in verse 25 that Adam and Eve stood before each other naked and unashamed. Like I said at the top, there is a lot wrapped up in that sentence that I don't think we want to gloss over. That sentence again describes for us this world that was totally unlike ours. This world, our total vulnerability didn't make people break out in cold sweats, right? This world where when you met someone new, as Adam and Eve were meeting each other for the first time, you didn't immediately turn inward to yourself and start thinking, did I impress them? Did I attract them? Do they like me? Or should I feel ashamed of this first encounter? No. When Adam meets Eve in this world before shame, what is the first thing he does? Think about himself. Think about his response. Think about what he's thinking of, or she's thinking of him. No, he thinks of her. He looks at her. He praises her. He's singing to God. God's praises for giving him this bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Gives her a name. Totally focused on her. Eyes totally off of himself. We don't live in that world anymore. But in the world that God originally created, Adam and Eve could stand in front of one another and not feel ashamed. Focus on one another. See one another. Love one another. That kind of confidence didn't come from the fact that they had incredible bodies that they were flaunting as they stood there. Maybe they did. But even then, if, if your confidence comes from the fact that, that you think you are so attractive, so beautiful, so outwardly compelling for other people, even that comes out of trying to avoid shame, right? You don't want to repulse people. You don't want to turn. So you, so you try and make yourself something that other people are going to be drawn to and attracted to. That wasn't where Adam and Eve's confidence came from. Their confidence came from the fact that they knew what God thought of them. They could take their eyes off of themselves, off of who they were, look at one another, at their neighbor, love their neighbor, love each other, because they knew that God looked at them and said to them, very good, perfect. Again, we don't live in that world anymore. We're obsessed with the way we appear to others by nature. We have to tell other people all about ourselves the first time that we meet them to, to, again, to impress them, to attract them, to compel them to find us interesting and worthy and good and valuable. This shows up in our lives in a lot of ways if we think about it. If somebody new comes to our church, how do we react to that? We first ask them about themselves, try and find things out about themselves. We talk to them about all the reasons they should find us. So interesting, so compelling, so attractive that they should really join us. Or do we take our eyes off themselves and love that neighbor? I'll put that again in terms of these interpersonal relationships, right? If you were on the first date with somebody who just would not shut up about themselves, who just kept talking about themselves and never once asked a question about you, that person getting a second date? How do we deal with this? How do we deal with the fact that in this sinful world, our incurved self-obsession would leave each and every one of us ultimately feeling totally alone? Because even if you have an incredible marriage, a million Instagram followers, devoted circle of close friends, if the foundation of all of that is ultimately shame avoidance, feeling like you are alone, feeling like you need by your own charisma, stamina, beauty to attract these people to you, 
and you ultimately always feel alone. You'll never ever feel like there's anyone who actually loves you and cares about you. God has an answer for our fear of shame in Jesus Christ. And God brought that first husband, that first wife together. They created the first human relationship. Again, that was the world where shame wasn't a problem. No sin, no shame. Now we live in this shameful, sinful world where we can barely bear to stand vulnerable in front of one another, let alone before a holy God. This is how God answers that problem. Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy blameless. This is that key to keeping fear out of our marriages. This is the key to keeping fear out of our families, out of our churches, out of every relationship that we have. Security in the identity that Jesus has provided for us in our baptisms. Forgiven. Redeemed. Adam and Eve had that confidence to stand before one another, vulnerable, unashamed, to love one another without eyes on themselves because they knew what God thought of them. They knew what it was he said about them. You know what Jesus Christ thinks about you, says about you, and you do. And you can stand in front of a neighbor with your eyes off of yourself. Or that neighbor is your, your spouse, your child, your actual neighbor. You can love that person without needing to feel compelled to draw them into you, to attract them. You can love them for who they are. See what these words from Ephesians tell us about shame, about the fear that shame motivates. Shame is gone. There is no shame. We weren't worthy of Jesus' love, right? We should be ashamed of our sin. Jesus loved us anyways. We were alone. We were cut off from one another, from God because of our sin. Jesus came to us, into our world, unites us to himself in our baptism, unites us to his death, raises us to new life. And then what is it that he says to us? You are mine. I've redeemed you. I've washed you totally clean. Now we stand before one another, not naked anymore, really, wearing white robes royal wedding robes that Jesus, our King, out of the church provided for us. All of it totally undeserved. Free and full, a gift. This is a message that we can share with our shame-suffocated world. God created this world without shame. God came into this world. Take shame away. God brings us together into a community where we can stand alongside one another, with one another, and confess that our shame has been taken away. This is a message that gives us the confidence in all of our relationships, in our marriages, in our relationship as parent to child, in our relationship as coworker, as friend, as acquaintance. This is the message that gives us confidence to love our neighbor without our eyes on ourselves. We are not alone. We are not ashamed. Amen. Please stand.